welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. I want you to imagine for a second a magical outdoor place. It's in Connecticut. It's 1,100 square miles, which is half the size of Grand Canyon National Park. It's huge. You can walk or canoe for miles and miles and not see or hear anything approaching civilization. In fact, a lot of the landscape there has hardly changed from the days when Native Americans were there originally. That place is called the Last Green Valley. And here to tell us all about this miraculous place are Fran Kefalis, she's assistant director of the Last Green Valley, and Bill Reed, chief ranger for the group. And now, Connecticut's fairy tale land, the Last Green Valley. Last Green Valley. That name alone conjures up all sorts of images of uncrowded space and open land, and that's exactly what exists out in the eastern Connecticut and southern Massachusetts. 85% of this huge tract of land is still undeveloped. The Last Green Valley is what's known as a National Heritage Corridor. It's a special program started in the 1990s. It has to be approved by Congress, and there's a partnership with the U.S. Park Service. Well, the way that they've been running the last Green Valley in Connecticut and Massachusetts is so unique and so special that it is now the model for other National Heritage Corridor groups. They use collaborative partnerships. There aren't a lot of direct routes from western Connecticut to eastern Connecticut, so a lot of people in the western half of the state haven't yet heard of the last Green Valley. But perhaps the best way to point this out is that a satellite photo was taken from outer space at night, and all you see from Washington, D.C. to Boston is lights, light pollution all the way up and down the eastern seaboard, except for one dark spot in eastern Connecticut and south-central Massachusetts, and that today is the last Green Valley. Well, to tell you the story of how it was formed and how the organization keeps this area so pristine are the assistant director of the last Green Valley, Fran Kefalis. She's a former journalist who moved from New York City back in 1996 and, in fact, covered the story of the formation of the last Green Valley organization, and now she's working for it. And also Chief Ranger Bill Reed, he grew up outside Boston, started working at Old Sturbridge Village in Massachusetts, a place I'm sure, like me, you've been. Anyway, that's also in the footprint of the Last Green Valley, the old Sturbridge Village. But he did a history project with a woman who it turns out was the first paid staffer at the Last Green Valley. Well, he came to work there in 2006, and he's been there ever since. Living in Fairfield County as I do... Yeah, it's leafy and it's suburban and it's nice, but there's a house every so often and where you are, it's just not the same. So maybe we start there. How does it feel to wake up in the morning living in a place like the last Green Valley? I moved here from a suburban area outside of Boston. And I and yes, it was a leafy, leafy suburb and a beautiful town. But to live in an area that has such amazing deep forest. We have very large tracts, thousands of acre tracts, uh, predominantly state forest land, and many of these large tracts are interconnected. And so to be on a nice woodsy trail in the deep forest and not hearing anything, no cars, is really startling. Paddling some of our rivers where you see virtually no houses at all. 
and it's quiet. You have to go and look for it. I live in Putnam now, and so I hear the train and I can hear the traffic. Hop, skip, and a jump away to a place that you really are in deep woods. The statistics are just mind-numbing. 707,000 acres of which almost 85% is still forest and farmland. And this is half the size of Grand Canyon National Park for anybody who's been there. So this is, to me, the mind-numbing part of this. And there are a lot of forests. So these are preserved areas. What about the rest? What is zoning like? What is the What are the odds that this is going to stay this way for a long period of time? Well, every town has its own you know, zoning regulations. Connecticut's one of the most forested states in the union. But most of that forested land is individually owned. And so while we have those large unbroken tracts of state forest land, we still have predominantly individually owned forests. Bill just mentioned that much of our land is privately owned, and that's the reason why we worked with a number of other uh, partners to create your family land legacy or memory, a guide to helping families protect their land. We are 35 communities, 26 in Connecticut, 9 in Massachusetts. Zoning is not centralized in any way in those towns, so they all have their own take on things. Our ability is to help educate so that people can make real choices and how they can do their part to keep it that way. I think that people who have never been involved in regional governmental activities simply don't understand how complex that is. And when I first saw how many towns and even two states that you're trying to coordinate these types of activities, stewardship, environmental concerns, that's a lot of political organizations to try and bring to the table and get any sort of consensus. How how do you do it? I think the trick here, Mike, is that we are not political in any way. This Heritage Corridor was created by people who love the area and it was grassroots. We worked really hard from the beginning to create partnerships that were about collaboration. Absolutely, each of our 35 municipalities are our partners, but so are land trusts. So are nonprofits in all kinds of sectors. And so really, it's more about partnership and creating those opportunities for people to work together for a common goal. We don't have any ability to suggest to any community, nor do we want to, that like, oh, your land use regulation should look like this. It's more of here is the information and hopefully enough people are on board with wanting to retain, you know, this incredible open space that we have and our clean waters and, you know, the fact that we have bald eagles nests all over the place. It's that love and excitement that people get from being in it that helps create the passion for retaining it. So that is the common goal that you strive for, is to maintain that kind of spirit? Yeah, without a doubt. We really are educational. We will comment where we find something that may be proposed that may not be a good fit, but we don't have that sort of regulatory control. Our educational programs are really the key to what we do, and we try to be in front of as many people as we can be throughout the year. We do our own programs. We have people that come to our programs like Walktober, which is huge. But we also have a cadre of volunteer rangers that along with me will be at 50 plus community events throughout the year where we're talking to people, sharing our brochures, sharing our information, 
our guides, our maps. When you talk about tourism, obviously one way you could look at that is to get somebody like Mike Allen coming up from Danbury, Connecticut, out to Eastern Connecticut and touring, and, and I will do that. I'm just wondering as well, you know, with 26 towns in Connecticut, some of them may or may not know the other towns. Is tourism also sort of intra-town? Is that how you think of it? It has to be. Most of them recognize that they are part of a bigger picture. Even our state forest, Patchogue State Forest, is the largest state forest in Connecticut, and it crosses multiple towns. It is most of Voluntown, for example, which is one of our heritage corridor towns, and it is a huge part of the Voluntown economy. You know, people come to Patchogue to camp, and they want to sometimes eat out, not just only cook over the campfire. And so that helps other communities, too. We're tourism in a different kind of way here because there's not that one big destination. There's not an attraction, if you will, that is so massive that it's, it's drawing thousands of people. What's drawing people are our historic New England villages and downtowns and our hundreds of miles of trails. It is the landscape and the history and the way they combine is what's attractive here for people to come visit. When you talk about Eastern Connecticut, what are some of what you would put sort of at the top of that list if you had to pick the top three to five historical events that just jump off the map and say this is what put Eastern Connecticut on the map in terms of history? What would those be? Well, first you have to realize, of course, that 10,000 years ago, Eastern Connecticut was under a mile of ice sheet with a glacier. Indigenous peoples moving into this area 8,000 or so years ago and they were here for a long, long while. We are on Nipmuc land predominantly, and uh, south of us, Pequot and Mohegan land, further to the east, up the Rhode Island coast, Narragansett land. Those are the cultures that were here. And of course, the greatest change for them occurred in the beginning of the 17th century when pilgrims arrived and colonists arrived. For this region, that was a huge, huge thing that occurred. Most of those Native Americans were really sort of wiped out by disease. Some of them wanted to drive the English away. But one of them from down the southern part of the region here, Uncas, the Mohegans, really saw the need to cooperate and work with the colonists, really for survival. He knew that if his people were going to survive, that would happen. But the King Philip's War that occurred in 1675 was a major, major upheaval. Following that is really when the really colonization of this part of Connecticut really began to come in. And so then you start to see the hill towns developing. You start to see agriculture. By the early 19th century, Connecticut was 80% cleared land. <laughs> so huge change in the land that occurred in that period. And the second thing really is then the decline of agriculture and the rise of industry. And that is what really transformed this region. We're a region rich in large rivers and streams. And certainly during the colonial era, there were every little river had a gristmill and a sawmill. But it was the rise of the Industrial Revolution, the 1830s and 40s and 50s and on in, that really transformed this region with so many people coming from all over the world. And there have been some pretty prominent people that came from eastern Connecticut as well. I would put Uncas up there. He was a very important person who really lived to preserve his people and his culture. Famous heroes like Israel Putnam, 
from over here in Pomfret and Brooklyn. This region really had a lot of Revolutionary War components to it. And I grew up not that far from the Boston area, so I always thought, you know, the Freedom Trail is where it all begins and ends, right? And the Concord Bridge. But here we have amazing connectedness through the town of Lebanon. Uh, Jonathan Trumbull, the only colonial governor who stood with the colonists, stood with the revolution. So there's countless people that really had huge impacts on this region, some notable like Trumbull and some notorious like Benedict Arnold. And Mike, the uh, Connecticut state hero and heroine are both from the Last Green Valley. Nathan Hale's from Coventry. Prince Granville is was in Canterbury. I think it speaks a lot to the history and that spirit of trailblazing that has always been here. You know, there's still a lot of the revolutionary feel in that area because a lot of the houses that were there during those years have been preserved. It's true. We have a number of structures on the National Register of Historic Places. We have 275 sites listed on the National Register of Historic Places and five National Historic Landmarks. So let's talk about the history of the Valley uh, organization, the, the Last Green Valley. It seems from what I've read that there was a congressman who did a study who suggested that Connecticut wasn't getting its fair share of federal funds for projects like this. Is that the person who's generally credited with being the spark behind the last Green Valley? Or how do you characterize that, the beginning of the last Green Valley? Our congressman at the time was Sam Gagenson. He will tell you that he just had an idea. He did realize that this region of the state in particular, but also the state was, in his feeling, not getting a fair share. He had this idea. National heritage areas were relatively new at the time. There were only three others. And he thought, well, let's see if this is an idea that the locals want to be a part of. And for sure they did, but it took quite a few years. He brought the idea to the area in 1988. And we were designated in 1994. He will tell you that it was the grassroots effort that made it happen. And honestly, Mike, that grassroots effort actually changed the way national heritage areas were created. From that point on, it was a different system. I like to tell people we broke the mold and started a new one because every other national heritage area after us mimics the sort of the process that came forward with this national heritage area. I assume you get calls from other heritage groups saying, how did you do it? We were number four. There are now 55 of them. Sometimes we do get calls, but they have spread to all over the country. We are still fairly unique in that we are a heritage area created because of a very unique combination of factors whereas some others are very specific in the reason why they're a heritage area. For example, the Revolution or the Civil War. We're not a heritage area because of a single moment in time. We're a heritage area because of the way history and the landscape have interplayed over the course of centuries. If you know the culture of California and Oregon, people who live in Oregon literally hate it when Californians seek to move into their state. They just love their state. It's more rural and it's different culturally and whatnot. If I lived out in eastern Connecticut, 
I'm afraid I would have a tendency to want to just keep this all to myself, this beautiful land, and not ever have anybody come in. That must uh, be a difficult decision for you guys to think about when you're thinking about publicity and drawing more and more people in. For me, it comes back to the land. The way that we can keep this bucolic last green valley still green is how we care for the land. So that means that if people are looking to move into this region, that we try to find ways uh, new housing that is not going to sort of parcelize all these wooded tracks. If you've got a large tract of 100 acres, instead of dividing it all into little sublots, different types of construction that sort of preserves the integrity of those interconnected lands. That's sort of where I come at. I don't begrudge people that want to move here. And, you know, half of the staff here at the Lash Green Valley came from away. I came from Massachusetts. Fran came from New York. And our executive director came from New Jersey. The other three staff uh, grew up here. I just want to make sure that we do it grow in such a way that we keep the land and the landscape and the natural beauty always front and center. We have some innovative thinkers, and there are folks that are working hard to renovate some of the mills. It no longer serve their original purpose but are being turned into incredible housing. There's places for people to come and live without us having to chop down trees to do so. I think for the most part here in the Last Green Valley, folks are more than welcoming to new arrivals. I think people get a little concerned when they start thinking that things are going to get chopped up into mini parcels and that the nature of our nature is going to be changed by an influx of folks. We certainly have seen, you know, more folks going, oh, that looks like a nice place to live in the last two years now that more and more people are not necessarily commuting by car, but commuting by Zoom to go to work. There's definitely pressure right now, but at the same time, it's too early to tell how that's going to play out. Bill, what's your favorite part about coming to work every day? The best part is what I do. I pinch myself every morning. I mean, I led a hike yesterday uh, with Fran, 25 people. We went up to a beautiful overlook uh, to go see the sunset. Uh, and so I get to do that. And along the way, we get to talk about what we see and we get to talk about the flora and fauna and just get people excited about being outdoors. Fran, same question to you. People definitely, um, Mike, every day is different here. There are days when I get to go out into the woods with Bill or another coworker and help, you know, with hikes. And then there are days when I get to be really creative and talk to people about uh, everything from the history of this place to the importance of creating pollinator habitat here. My son tells me I have an office job without an office. I never intended to stay when I moved to Connecticut. But it's been quite a few years, and I'm still here. Well, let's just hope that the nature of nature can be preserved for many future generations to come. Well, that wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. The Last Green Valley is a nonprofit 501c group, and they will happily accept your donations. Check them out at their website, tlgv.org. I want to thank my guests for this episode. 
the last Green Valley Assistant Director, Fran Kafalis, and the Chief Ranger for the group, Bill Reed. Next week on Amazing Tales CT, they're hard to find, but they're hiding in plain sight. Wait until you hear the story of the stone mile markers that used to grace every major dirt turnpike in Connecticut and are still around if you know where to look, and we'll tell you about that next time on Amazing Tales. Well, if you like the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know when the next episode is coming. And spread the word. Tell your family, friends, and colleagues to check it out. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy. Stay healthy.